welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up-and-coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Welcome back to Meet the PAs podcast. Today we have with us Lindsay Melcarrick. She is a physician assistant in the U.S. She practices in a general practice in Western New York, and she is also the lead for Physician Assistance for Global Health, PAGH. She also, interestingly enough, has a master's in public health. Of course, she has her master's in PA studies as well. Welcome. Thanks for being with us, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. Oh, we're very glad to have you here. You have such an interesting background. Talk to us a little bit about what led, what led you to having a master's in both public health and PA studies. So my original inspiration for getting my public health degree actually came from a little story. I knew I wanted to pursue medicine. I had issues about going to medical school. I thought I would devote my whole life to being a physician. And I listened to other physicians who said they really never left the hospital and they devoted all their time to the profession. And I have, like the rest of us, some OCD personality traits, type A personality that we all enjoy so much. But I was was afraid that I was going to end up in the same way, just like devoting my whole life to medicine and not having a personal life. So I actually decided not to apply to medical school and go to PA school. But my original thought process, um, since I've had an interest in Africa since I was eight years old, was to run a clinic in the middle of nowhere in Africa and be the sole provider for that space. But I have a friend who went to Tanzania and she told a little story about a woman in a village there who said we, she was um, prostituting her body in order to get money to Um, feed her children. And so the HIV, uh, the conversation of HIV came up and this woman said, it's not that we don't know that condoms are protective. It's that there are none available. And from that one story, I really thought to myself, I could be the person that makes that change happen. So I knew I wanted to practice clinically in some small place in Africa. Again, my nice little cute dream. But when I heard that story, I was like, that's public health. I want to know how to write grants and I want to know how to get supplies for people that need additional support beyond just traditional medicine. So that was the first time in my life I probably was 22 or 23. Just remember thinking, wow, there's another aspect to medicine that we don't talk about. And so that's when I decided to go for my public health degree. I had a little bit of a year off before I was going to start PA school. So I was like, well, I'm just going to turn in my application for my MPH at the University of Buffalo, which was my undergraduate alma mater. I got in and I loved, fell in love with that program. And it became a passion that has carried me through since. So specialized in health services administration. So my concentration and capabilities are really managing and running organizational sort of practices. And that, I mean, that's really interesting. You took part of that project in, to Brazil, yeah? Yes. So in my master's of public health coursework, an opportunity to study abroad in Brazil came up, which was a three-week trip to study their healthcare system. And that's sort of one of my, again, nerdier points in my in my public health studies. But so I um, got to go to Brazil and look at all the parts of their healthcare system, look at the public aspects versus the private aspects. Um, I was really fascinated because they have a lot of 
just interesting support systems in place, and they're much more preventative medicine focused than the United States had been at the time. Really? Um, so that was my first global health oh, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have the they have their clinics built on a grid system. So throughout a small city, for example, mm. there is an equal distance clinics are spread from each other in a block area. So if you live in the same block, you'll go to the same health clinic your whole life. Wow. And not only can you get primary care needs addressed there, you can get your dental issues addressed. You can get physical therapy access. So these little small health centers are actually really comprehensive and they have community health workers um, associated with each one of those clinics. And they, if you miss your kids, miss the vaccinations, for example, a community health worker will come to your home and vaccinate your child. No kidding. They will help you administer insulin, teach you how to, you know, assess your blood pressure at home and do all those kinds of things. As part of the public funded system. Correct. So there's a lot you can, that was the first time I, I mean, I knew of course before that, that you could learn things, but it was just phenomenal what I was able to learn just by going and studying their healthcare system for three weeks. So that was my first experience abroad. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Did you do your two master's degrees like back to back? I actually was enrolled simultaneously for a little while. Um, I had wow. I, I had finished most of my coursework, which I <laughs> I did. You know, they don't recommend that you do, especially in graduate school, like nothing more than four classes a semester. I did six a semester, and I worked part time. So I had most of my coursework done by the time I started my PA program, but I hadn't finished my integrative project, which is like our little thesis. But I went to a PA program that had a summer off. We were one of the longest PA programs in the country. So on that first summer off between my two didactic years, I was able to go to India and was funded to do a community health assessment in a rural village. So I had one year of PA experience. I had my most of my master's of public health done at that point and then was able to do my own community health assessment. So I was able to learn a lot. So it, what, what was your project in India? So community health assessment is where you go into a community and you basically say, hey, what are your healthcare problems? What are your perceived access issues? They can, they're a varied, the, con, the content can be extremely varied depending on who supports them or wants to know certain things. Like you can go into a place and figure out how much HIV they have and, you know, who is on medication, who's not on medication, maybe reasons they're not on medication, maybe transport issues. So it's really a loose framework. I just went in with a general intention of kind of, again, I just identifying what problems existed in the area, perceived access issues, costs to the system. Mm. Um, So I just went in with a very vague overview to just kind of identify what the people were struggling with. And what did you find out? Many things. (laughs) Many things. Um, The local hospital, because I work in a rural area of India, North India, the rural hospitals can't treat a stroke they don't have they don't have resources to do that so if you come in with a stroke you have to be referred to the next hospital system out which is an hour and a half away most families can't afford the transportation that it would cost to even be able to go there fully fully privatized uh the majority is privatized okay there is public and they have access and their costs for medications are very cheap like i can buy a month supply of hypertension medication for four dollars cash pay out of pocket but they do i mean they have a public system and that's mostly what i have experience with is the public Mm -hmm. system but you know again the transportation issues um you know we really take for granted that we have paved roads not everybody does i had Mm. 
people there that have to walk about three kilometers just to get to the main road before they can even get a shared taxi to the hospital. So wow. imagine being sick, having a stroke. No, you can't do that. And getting yourself That's to impossible. the... Yes. And then um, other basic issues like a lot of children that have cerebral palsy just because they opted to do a home birth as opposed to a hospital birth and then complications occurred now the baby has cerebral palsy and I'm trying to convince a mom that she can have a baby again she just needs to have it in a in a safe environment in a more appropriate setting next time but they're so scarred from that experience that they believe they're not they can't ever have a, a child a functional child again so tremendous across the board mm. I, I've learned a lot from spending time in that village in that community Okay, so then you and then you came back to the U.S. and then I came finished back. Finished your PA study. That's correct. And then where did you go? I reached out to PAs for Global Health because I knew I wanted to have my first experience as a licensed physician assistant in another country. So I reached out to PAs to go, for Global Health, and they actually put me in touch with the American International Health Alliance. The American International Health Alliance. Correct. What is that? Can you say what that is? It is an American NGO that is based on PEPFAR funding, mm -hmm. which is the president's I'm going to mess up the acronym. I know the acronym, but I'm going to mess up the word placement. But it's basically the President's Relief for HIV and AIDS funding. It was originally established by President Bush and has been a program for 20 okay. years. It's okay. currently under threat um, due to our current, current political, political crime, climate. So yeah. the goal is to bolster HIV and AIDS addressing HIV and AIDS. And the way South Africa, the program was structured in South Africa was that they were bolstering the local medical community to address HIV and AIDS. So they started a clinical associates program in 2010. And I applied for the job to serve as sort of a mentor for program for the three universities that have clinical associate programs in South Africa. And I was paired with to teach at one of the universities. So I didn't have a license to practice medicine, but I was an associate lecturer. I took our students to the clinic and still was able to see patients you just can't, quote, lay a hand on a patient, end quote. So you can't draw blood, you can't do procedures, mm -hmm. but you can still go, you can and still can go and talk mentor. to patients, mm -hmm. yes, and teach students. So that was, I applied for that job. They wanted five years of family practice experience, which I didn't have because I was a brand new graduate, but I had my master's in public health and I had a background in medical technology. So they took me. So sometimes you don't always have to be fully qualified to get a job. <laughs> That's so, the takeaway point here. That okay. is the takeaway point, especially in global <laughs> health, be bold, definitely be bold. And women in general, studies have shown, get passed over because they don't apply until they're fully qualified, whereas men will yeah. apply without being fully qualified mm -hmm. and just take the chance and end up getting the job. So women should always remember to apply even if you're not fully qualified because you never know what's going to happen and you don't know what organizations value if you have other skill sets, if you have research background, academia, administration, but if you have other skill sets, they're valued. I, I like your thoughts. Awesome. Yeah. So where are you working presently? I currently work in family practice and urgent care in Buffalo, New York. My urgent care position is just per diem, and my family practice job is full-time. So one of the questions we get a lot from our, not only, from mainly our Canadian audience, because we have a big Canadian audience, but also on the global scale is questions about scope of practice mm -hmm. and autonomy and your relationship between you and the MD. Mm -hmm. And so 
people have questions about it because it's a struggle here in Canada. Gotcha. And could you give people an idea of your scope of practice and autonomy that you have in your day-to-day practice? Scope of practice, <laughs> such a such a big, big question. So <laughs> scope of practice is tremendously variable. So I personally do not have a lot of oversight and supervision. My my notes were co-signed for the first six months that I practiced by a supervising physician. And thereafter, I none of my notes are co-signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I have help, I reach out to one of my supervising physicians mm-hmm. with questions. I also just reach out to other PAs. But now there is the only thing that still needs to be co-signed, and I believe it's because of an insurance technicality, are pre-ops, mm-hmm. pre-op clearances. Which would be u- unique Which to them. Really, because those are fairly basic. basic. Like, I <laughs> don't know exactly why that is the one loophole it's again a New i think York thing or an insurance right, thing correct or, but that's the besides a workers compensation if i was to do a workers comp case that would need to be co-signed but i don't i don't have to have any of my other notes co-signed mm-hmm. and in urgent care i work by myself yeah. so i'm the only physician assistant there and i that started from day one i was mm-hmm. a brand new grad well wow. i was um Recent so grad. recent grad, correct, because I didn't practice medicine when I was in South Africa. I was there for 10 months, came back and started practicing in the U.S. just in January of 2018. But yes, I've, I've never had anyone on site in my urgent care position. Some days of the week, I had an MD or a DO on site and still have one. But there, I also in family practice, I have days of the week where I'm the only provider in the practice. And I have to deal with all of the issues A to Z mm. that walk through. A to Z. A you to were Z. very careful to say Z. <laughs> Um, but I used to live in South Africa, so I, I'm pretty familiar with British systems, but anyway, yeah, so I, I'm used to, even from an early standpoint, had to handle stuff on my own with, without necessarily all the experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, in my practice, I have two to three different supervising physicians and, the discrepancy in which they give answers mm. is tremendous. Mm-hmm. There's one who kind of will completely blow me off and mm. tell me to Google stuff. Okay. There's, an, there's another one who will give me a very, very long-winded answer and maybe never quite get to the answer, but will go through many levels of teaching and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I have about one that I can get an answer from in two to three minutes. Okay, wow. So, very, very <laughs> yeah, yeah. so you do, unfortunately, depending on the practice you work in, you might not always be have the supervising physician that you're looking for for. They might not learn at the same level or identify information at the same level that you do. And that can be another potential issue when you're practicing medicine. Yeah. And how many patients do you see in a typical day? My family practice is not super hardcore, but that's also because I sort of made demands to make it that way. I have see 15 patients a day. That's perfect. That's um, beautiful. I do time. that for a reason because the patient population I work with is very heavy in Medicare and Medicaid. So it's low income, lots of chronic disease management, mm-hmm. geriatric patients, people that are morbidly obese. And so I can't justify sending them in and out of the door. Because I care, because I care about quality, but the practice that I work for incentivizes quantity. So I could make a hundred thousand dollars a year if I saw twenty to twenty-three patients a day, but I just refuse to do that, and I knowingly take a pay cut because I refuse to do that. <laughs> but my urgent care job, usually in an eight-hour shift, that's going to be twenty-two. 
probably about three an yeah. hour on average. And that's really not because I can't identify the issues. It's honestly paperwork. Yeah. It, I come in and out of that room and I still have to type up the note and I need to type up the note right after I see them so I can move on continue to move on and not have to be there three hours after we close. So it were the balance, the balance between your documentation and your patient load is still tremendously difficult. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that is fairly consistent across the board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Is your urgent care clinic related to your family health? It is not. They are two separate systems. Nope. Two separate systems. Some of them, some of them here are related. That's why I was curious. Yeah, correct. And they can be, um, in school in the United States, we're actually recommended, maybe not all programs, but my program recommended that you get a full-time job and a per diem job and use your per diem income to pay your student loan, which is good advice. My only advice that I would elaborate on that is I obviously see previous talking points. I'm really good at biting off more than I can chew. And I was successful at it during both of my PA programs. I still was able to work part-time as a medical technologist. I had a really great support team in the job in the hospital I was working at. So I was able to pull it off, but practicing medicine for the first time, I would say it would be the, f- the first time in my life I was practicing, you know, per diem and family practice just started brand new, same time simultaneously. And I was like, this is too much. So my only recommendation for new grads is if you are going to do something like that is you probably should wait six months, like give yourself time to get comfortable at your Mm full-time job before you go out pursuing per diem. That was the only thing I probably would have done differently in hindsight, but I survived. I made it. Loan crisis in the U.S. is, is very challenging it is expensive to go to PA school in Canada and other parts of the world, but it doesn't compare. Not the way it is in the U S and the private, it's really hard to get into a public school because of course no one wants to pay the money. So, you know, Stony Brook, for example, is in New York is a public school. So their tuition is the best of all the PA programs. They open up their application cycle and within two days they've received they've shut their application down wow so they have had, had they have more than they can then they will that. interview and maybe so if you don't know that before you apply to school you know if you don't know those little insider points you're, you're going to miss out by default just mm. because you're not going to get your application their time so yeah so getting publicly publicly funded education as a pa in the united states is aggressive which we should say, publicly funded education is not free. It's just discounted. Correct. <laughs> that is absolutely well, correct. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably what people would call the universities in Canada. Like they're not private the way they are in the States. You know, like they all get funding from the government. So they're sort of all kind of public, I guess. I was wanting to shift the conversation a little bit here and talk about PAGH, the Physician Assistance for Global Health, because you are obviously such a leader in that. <laughs> If you could give us your brief description or you know, elevator pitch as to what that is, what that organization is, and what your goals are here with the Canadian audience. So Physician Assistance for Global Health has been a caucus branch of the AAPA, which basically means we're a special interest group designated by the AAPA roughly 10 years ago almost. And it was because physician assistants in the United States were reaching out to AAPA and saying, hey, I want to serve abroad. How do I do that? And AAPA at the time said, we don't know how to do this. We have nobody that answers this question. So they actually moved for the establishment of PAs for Global Health. So we are a nonprofit volunteer-run organization that provides physician assistance with information on global health opportunities. So organizations reach out to us and they say, Basically, they say, hey, we'll take PAs in this context. We do still have a lot of short-term mission-based trips, though Mm -hmm. I will say we're 
moving out of that model. We have a database of those companies that reach out to us. And then our members have access to that database and contact information and their therefore and so on. So they can set up their own experiences in global health. They have to set up their own though. So like you provide the connection. We provide the connection. Yeah. If people reach out to us via email, we will do that too. We'll just help them. You know, like if we have particular, like I, for example, I got my job, I found my job in South Africa through PAs for Global Health who just was like, hey, here's this organization that, you know, is currently hiring. They might be good for you. You might be good for them. And I reached out to them. So we do answer emails and we take emails with those kinds of questions and we will network, you know, where need be. But yeah, basically our platform is not mostly not that it's just access to the database. We also have a quarterly newsletter. We have a conference every year. Mm -hmm. We have a board. So the nice thing is it's a big organization, but a small organization simultaneously. So Mm. we don't always have people that are members who are interested in leadership positions. But so when people are interested in leadership positions and a new one becomes available, a lot of times candidates have a lot of success Mm -hmm. getting on on the board. We also feature a scholarship. So we have four student scholarships a year. They're about $350 each. It depends on our budget, of course. And then we have one fellowship scholarship position as well. But so any of our members can reach out and apply to that once a year and we send them that Mm -hmm. money. So if they're, even if they're a lot of students now because students are our largest number by bulk of members are doing international rotations mm-hmm. so they use their yep. money mm-hmm. for international rotations rachel did an international rotation perfect we have a whole database of international rotations available to our members <laughs> yeah. i was just really lucky i sort of fell into it i was actually doing my family med rotation and he was going overseas to do a medical mission Perfect. And he said, so I'll switch you to a different doc. And I said, well, can I tag along? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I joined up and I fundraised the money to go. And it was amazing. I'm really, really glad I went. Where did you go? Uh, we went to Ghana. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we did a two weeks of like sort of touring small communities and doing like checks and giving out medications and things like that. and Making sure they all got iron and vitamins and deworming and malaria medication and things like that for two weeks we saw mostly kids we went to schools i think cool. we saw 1500 kids and 500 adults wow, wow. So, that's a lot yeah it was yeah it was a you just sat all day and you know patients came up but it's for some of them it's the only health care they get once or twice a year Cor- correct so, absolutely correct um, yeah that still happens a lot in the world so, so uh, you know off of that happening yeah. so much in the world could you Talk to us, Lindsay, about where PAs are at globally. I th- sometimes it feels like we're all very isolated in our own space. Sure. And one of your big things is bringing us together. Correct. I really, I, PAs for Global Health is originally an American created organization, but having worked in South Africa, having connections in Canada and the UK, and um, knowing that there are clinical officers in Kenya and Uganda, I really have an inspiration to unite regardless of of borders. Yes, correct. And we're not called the same thing around the world either. For example, in Kenya, we're clinical officers. In Uganda, we're clinical officers. In South Africa, we're clinical associates. In the UK, physician associates. In the United States, physician assistants. Also in Liberia and India, physician assistants, because they took the US name and model. Japan has a program as no, well. I did not know so that. I have a running list and I can't name all of the, the countries off the top of my head for you, which is a shame. 
but I do have a list of about 20 countries in the world that have our profession, regardless of the name. Um, obviously, like I said, the US, Canada, the UK, Netherlands, Germany, India, Liberia, Ghana, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, I believe, has started to talk about having a program. I forgot Ireland when I, Ireland and Scotland when I was in Europe. And then there's actually an American PA who is starting a program in Laos. So no um, there are actually wow. no programs in South America, though there are a ton of mission trips to like Haiti and the Dominican and that kind of thing. Um, Haiti's a little bit of an issue because there are actually too many people there and the resources are being duplicated. There's a ton of money being dumped in Haiti, but there's no efficiency. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of been a major recall for all those organizations to meet up and start compiling resources and that kind of thing. But anyway, I digress. So there are a lot of countries and like I said, Liberia also as well. But so there are a lot of countries in the world that have an advanced practitioner position, which is not called the same thing. Um, so you have to do a little bit of research before you go anywhere to kind of understand what the appropriate terminology you would need to use in that country is. But we exist in a lot of different platforms and I'd like to break down the barriers between us and have other countries be aware that we all exist and we can connect together. What I'd like to do in Canada, as well as the UK and every other country <laughs> on the planet that has advanced practitioners, is open up the floodgate to help share information on global health opportunities because everyone is interested in this, right? Even in South Africa, they would have a total cultural shock going to Kenya because it is so different. We have a lot of paved roads in South Africa and Kenya doesn't, it yeah. would just be a totally different context with even different issues. But so thinking of that and having inspiration, I wanted to reach out to Canada and say, hey, what kind of global health opportunities exist here? And a lot of Canadian PAs said they didn't know of any. And actually some of the ones that reached back out to me said that they've been on global health opportunities through American organizations. And I was just having an interesting conversation with three Canadian PAs today about how there's really no need for that, right? Like there are global health, there are global health um, organizations in Canada, just no one's reached out to them and say, hey, would you also take the PAs? Mm. So there's advocacy work that needs to be done. But I think these are, yeah. again, I wanted to start these conversations and start, because again, uh, America as a profession sort of is, we have our issues, but pretty fine tuned comparatively to other countries in the world that have physician assistants, clinical associates, clinical officers, et cetera. So I really found the need to be a more internationally kind of focused organization because there are lots of countries in the world that still need help and development, but also are interested in global health opportunities and that kind of thing. And we get, we get questions from American PAs every day who, who are moving to Angola or Australia or the UK, and they want to know how to get registered as an advanced practitioner in that country. And they want to know how they find out about opportunities that exist there. And I don't see why that information wouldn't be available to all of us. We are completely on board with that. We're so excited here on the podcast because we are, this is such a beautiful mission and topic. And to be honest, it seems to expand past the initial thoughts of what this special interest group was going to be. And now you're, you're pulling in all these other aspects that are going to make this organization really stand out and shine. And I, I think it, we have the potential to do that. And that's, Again, uh, nonprofits, boards turn over pretty frequently, but during my time, 
<laughs> I would like to be as aggressive as possible in this initiative because you do realize that when new boards come in, mission and vision can change. And so um, I'd really like to go as hard as hard as I can. I don't, and again, we're nonprofit, totally volunteer run. And I was just joking with the president of AAPA that I'd be more than happy to get a paid position to do this. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just, honestly, I'm, I would like to do it because it needs to be done. That's just yeah. how it is. It needs to be done for the right reasons and for no other reason. How would Canadian PAs go about finding someplace else that they could work? I mean, getting that, we don't have reciprocity anywhere. Getting the Correct. ability to actually work in an international location is not that simple. So... I would say the first kind of the first things first is I'd like to expand membership for PAs for Global Health. So we do have a paid membership, but we're not very expensive. We're about $55 a year mm-hmm. to be affiliated with our organization. From there, I would like to Sorry, can you back up for a second? So do you have to be a member of AAPA in order to be a member of your organization? Great question. No, there is actually um, an affiliate membership. So you do not have to be an AAPA member to be a member of our organization. So um, then from there, the expansion really needs to come from like the database. So basically we have the database with opportunities listed, but we need to reach out to those represented, those organizations and say, hey, would you take a Canadian PA? Because there really shouldn't be again, in my mind, any difference there. Correct. So we need to do a little bit of advocacy work to make sure that can happen. But I'm also interested in starting to reach out to Canadian organizations that have global health opportunities that maybe they only take doctors and say, hey, are you interested in taking PAs? I think that we should have advocates in Canada who mm-hmm. pursue that. Um, I think obviously we have a board in the United States that would be more than happy to be supportive and helpful in the advocacy work for sure. But I do think, you know, there's no reason that, you know, Canadian PAs can't do that and Mm. be part of that because obviously in every country we want to be our own advocates. Right. Um, But I do think we, we have resources with AAPA because we're a caucus branch. And I think just in general, because our, again, our, our, platform is a little bit more streamlined that we can start devoting a time and attention to these bigger topic issues. Somebody needs to do the advocacy work and I think it can be done and it's feasible and we just need to put some steps in the right direction basically. So yeah, again, it's a, it's a beautiful mission and vision. I got to get a couple people on board that can help me out because I can't do it alone. So, (laughs) but I think Canadian PAs from the outreach I had of Canadian PAs after and Dang posted on the Ontario Facebook page. I had 11 people who messaged me basically overnight to say they were interested. So I know the interest exists here, and I feel bad that Canada has, and it's not just Canada, students in our own country in America don't know that this organization exists or they can do these kinds of things, but I feel bad because Canada hasn't had an organization to support this kind of work, and I would like to help be that support to expand this kind of stuff across borders. We don't very often get people coming to us saying, we want to, we want to be the support for you. Well, I, I, again, I just, I just think we should be, I I think we're in a position where we can be. And I think, again, there are so many countries in the world that have us and we all need help because in, in South Africa, they've only been a profession since 2010 and the national government still hasn't recognize them as a profession. In India, it's taken 20 years and they're now just potentially maybe getting recognized from the national level. But yeah, there's, there are 
physician assistants, clinical associates, clinical officers across the board who do really good work. And, you know, the profession's been in in East Africa longer than it's been anywhere else. In Kenya, it started in 1928. Uh, you told me this yesterday, and I can't believe this. It started, it, with, this it started with hospital training. There's this myth that the U.S. is the first. And I always say it's the first in the West, but not in and other not, parts not of the Not in the globe. So where, where was this, 1928? In 1928 in Kenya, okay. and it started as a hospital training program mm-hmm. that didn't get full licensure and recognition until much later, about 40 years later. I think they were in the 1960s as well before they really took the ground running. But um, Tanzania's had the profession. They're called assistant medical officers. And they've been a profession since 1961. It's been in a lot of other places, but yeah, America started, maybe started it in the West and it's spread since. It's always acknowledging that there are other countries in the world who've been doing this for a little while longer. Had some different struggles, you know, been through some different funding issues and that kind of thing. But you always, I mean, in global health, it's just the most important thing is to take the ego out of things. And especially when you practice overseas, as you know, you, you have to take the ego out of stuff. You don't, Everybody has different culture, different rules, and it's really not your job or your place to question their rules or, you know, and and we still want to help change things like get people like access to clean water, sanitation facilities. We want to end violence against women and and do these kinds of things because they're they're good to, in general, they help make people healthier as a whole. But, you know, you definitely have to understand the cultural context you're in. You have to be culturally appropriate and you have to have diplomacy above all because coming in and saying like, hey, I'm American and you should do it this way because we do it this way is not going to get you anywhere. So no. <laughs> best not to develop that attitude from the get go and you'll be much more successful. Okay, Lindsay, how can people get in touch with you if you'd like if they'd like to learn more and become involved? Sure. Our email is P-A-S-F-O-R global health pas for global health at gmail.com and our um, website is pas for global health.com gonna have a couple different platforms available on our website so that you know canadian pas can not only just Canadian pas any member basically can form their own profile and then you can see who's been where and maybe reach out to that person and say hey i see that you've worked in tanzania i'd love to go tell me more about this we'd also like to have the content available so people know how to register as a as a practitioner in another country, we're moving towards having that information mm-hmm. available. That's going to take a little while. Uh, so the way they can definitely reach out via email if you have individualized questions and visit our website if you're looking for a little bit more information. Like, reach out via email. I'm always happy to set up conference calls or just individual FaceTime chats. I am in the world of technology. I know we're very email-based, but I still would love to just have like a face-to-face or in-person conversation to kind of go because questions are always big, right? They're not just like, hey, how do I do this? You know, we, it leads into so many other big topic picture issues. So I'm still more than happy to do that. We'll post all of your contact information as well as um, the website on, when, what do we call this? A blog. Whenever we post this, we'll put that up. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Lindsay. It was really a pleasure to have you. Yes. Enjoy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.